Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. Today, I'm here with Nikki Kerlock. Nikki is currently a qualitative researcher at Facebook. She's also on the Epic board. Um, previously was the special projects director at the Tech Talent Project, uh, which is civic tech related, and a before that, a principal researcher at Ad Hoc. Also involved in the recent presidential transition from a civic tech perspective and is broadly interested in civic tech and tech privacy policy. So, uh, Nikki, thanks for being here. Uh, and to start, would you maybe tell everybody how you got interested in anthropology and your journey into that? Oh, wow. This is a um, <laughs> this is an interesting story. Um, when I was a child, I used to watch the those shows on TV where someone was like kind of talking about um, a particular non-contacted group and they would be kind of, you know, talking about like rites of passage and, you know, some person would have to jump over 10 cows in order to become a man. I don't know if you remember those, like, <laughs> but um, this was, I don't know, maybe the uh, early nineties. And I remember telling my mother, like, you know, I want to, I want to be the narrator here. Like, what do you call these people who know all these facts about all these people? And um, my mother was like, I don't know, you know, search me. So I just became obsessed with wanting to be that narrator on the screen saying, you know, this is very, very important for this person to, you know. And um, as, as my understanding of what that meant matured, I still kept this deep interest in um, how people interacted with each other. And, and how it was so different and so much the same across the world. And I have just kept that curiosity. I have maintained that. And I what really pushed me was after Hurricane Katrina and a lot of the um, a lot of the survivors from Hurricane Katrina were actually moving into Houston. I'm originally from Houston. And I worked at a community technology center. And at that community technology center, we were like oh, you know what? We are going to like bring food. We're going to bring blankets because they'd relocated to Houston and they'd housed them all in Houston's Astrodome. And so if you can imagine, the Astrodome is full of people sleeping, um, walking kind of up and down the riser, sleeping in that middle section. And as a community technology center, we brought like all this food and these blankets and we we're like, oh, you know what? We're good people. We're going to help. You know, we're awesome. And uh, when we got there, of course, the food and the blankets were excellent, but I just started to walk up and down those risers and chat with people. And you know what? Like those folks hadn't seen their loved ones. They were rescued off of rooftops um, and they didn't know where their auntie was or their cousin. Um, and we were a community technology center. <laughs> and I actually thought we could do better to serve those folks. So we honestly just 
gathered up all our stuff and we plopped down our community technology center dead in the middle of the Astrodome. And we built up a database so people could enter themselves in. They can find their loved ones, like scattered, honestly, across the country. And they would ring this huge cowbell when <laughs> when they found a loved one. It was peak right. Texas. But um, it was just that moment that made me know that asking was always better than assuming. And I felt like anthropology was a field for that. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, so between... The, you know the story, especially when you're young, is is particularly uh, you know sort of uh, heartwarming in many ways. And and then obviously the you know the the community tech center, it, obviously it's really important work. But you still somewhere in there, you need to know like exactly that it's anthropology, right? So like you know who turns you on to that? Um, that's such a good question. I remember wanting to be an anthropologist for a very long time. But I will tell you that um, my understanding of what anthropology was from when I was in fifth grade, which is TV narrator, right, <laughs> to like um, ninth grade, like personal explorer, to like after time in that community technology center, just deep question asker. It mm-hmm. always evolved. But I'm like one of those weird people who looked that word up in the dictionary and decided well before she knew what it entailed, that that's what I wanted to be. <laughs> so I, I feel like I've known for honestly a very long time. Yeah, no, that's since, since thinking about being that narrator. <laughs> yeah, no, very cool. And, and, um, you know, I, the, the question asking is, is of course, you know, very relevant to what we do, right. It, it's, um, but it's interesting because, um, you know, I guess some people learn that that is like sort of an ideal method, right, or, or a way to approach the research. And then others are like, you are naturally curious, which is sort of interesting. And I, I appreciate that a lot of anthropologists are naturally curious. Um, but do you have any sense of like where that came from? I mean, just like aside from like the show on TV, like, I mean, is, you know, was there any other traveling or anything that sort of just piqued that? Um, that, that's a great question. We we grew up pretty, um, I mean, being personally like really candid, we were um, we were pretty poor, and we didn't have a lot of access to like traveling in the the country. We rarely even moved outside of the side of our side of town. It was a huge deal to like travel to the other side of Houston to go like to the north side or to the south side. Um, so I didn't. The only piece of the world that I saw with through the Discovery Channel. But I always had um, like these really um, itchy feet and I would just sit and watch these shows and that was my only real window. Um, also school. School in, a, in an environment that, um, it, that, that was, it was hard to nurture um, those types of questions. Um, I found school to be um, a safe space to ask a ton of questions. And um, it um, being the pet to a ton of librarians and English school teachers um, just made me want to see the world um, that I read in books that I saw in these, you know, educational shows. Um, Honestly, I I would say probably the idea of being this explorer anthropologist probably came out of a sense of escapism. Right. Mm -hmm. Sense of like being in another place thinking differently about people, thinking differently about a thing, right? Because at the time, the the environment that I had was um, very, you know, chop wood, carry water. Like, this is what you need to do to kind of 
make it to make sure that you have food in your belly, right? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. The sort of dichotomy between like, you know, maybe getting there, you know, almost as a, as a function of escapism versus others who do have, you know, certain opportunities and get turned on early on because maybe they, you know, they were, I was just interviewing Melissa Vogel and her episode will be out soon, but, um, you know, she talked about her parents traveled and took her and, you know, so she was visiting some indigenous communities and that sort of sparked that interest early on. Right. And so it's very different, both interesting stories, but it, in many ways, you know, does speak to, I think some of what we're going to talk about today, which is sort of inequality, right. And, and how sort of our decisions, basically, you know, in tech, but well beyond tech really sort of impact people and, you know, give opportunities or not. And so without jumping ahead, I'd like to, you know, to kind of um, get into a little bit about how you got into UX, because, you know, that, that curiosity and that desire to explore in a more traditional anthropological sense is still very different than UX. And so it's very, it's always very interesting to hear, like, where did people first learn about UX? You know, who, like, what was their transition to get there? And so I'd like to dig into that a little. So do you have any sense of where you first came across that? That's a good question. Um, I would say that I first came across the idea of UX um, as a postdoc in, at the university of Pennsylvania. And, um, I had an, an amazing experience at the University of Pennsylvania. And as an academic, I was taught essentially that this is, this is the end. Like you, all you have to do is just fill out your application. Things will be great. You'll be fine. You know, and I fill out all these applications, probably hundreds. And I got nothing like bubkis. It was like worse than zero to not even get like a call back. Right. And, um, but I also, at the same time, um, at the uh, Wharton School, they would also call on like sociologists and anthropologists to run these like really cool focus groups and sessions. And I was able to kind of like go and hang out and, <clears throat> and kind of see what these anthropologists were um, doing on the other side of the school. Oh, you know, you're getting paid to chat with people about what they think. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, there's a huge technical technology component also to my research, um, I ended up doing research in the, um, on the island of Hispaniola, which is both Santo Domingo and um, Haiti. And I did a ton of research on people converting from voodoo to evangelical Christianity. And one of the major aspects of the way they did that was their management and reimagining of technology. That's, that means like they were joining new Facebook groups. They were changing their Twitter handles to represent their new reborn identity. And so there's a huge aspect <clears throat> for myself for understanding that idea of becoming who you are that was um, at that time um, hinged very deeply on how people use technology. And I think it was a little bit before the huge like influencer culture, but you can see that almost plainly now, right? <laughs> but um, how people's identities were being shaped by that. So it was always an interest, but it was a subset of the, that larger question of identity and becoming. And, um, and <clears throat> so I started taking these little contractual gigs, you know, um, to see, oh, you know, oh, this could be something to supplement me while my dream tenure track position comes, which is off definitely going to come in the next couple of days. Right? <laughs> and so I start taking these, 
contractual positions working at USAA and um, other kind of large organizations who are looking to um, hire someone for six months, for um, five months to do like kind of quick shot investigations. And I was like, oh, I'll take these positions because tenure track will be on its way. Um, so there was this interesting like bifurcation point, right, where there was a, lar- a longer position available for me that was full time. And there was like a postdoc in like the Dakotas, which I'm not hating on the Dakotas, but it was nine months and I had a family. Right. And and I had to make a decision like at that one moment about what I was going to be. And I, I went in that other direction. I took the long term um, UX position because I could no longer um, afford I could no longer actually afford the idealism, right, of the academy. It, it became a point, like, with children and with a family, that we were, um, <laughs> we were within, under the, what do you call it? We were um, in the, the category to receive all these social services, right? So we were, like, still, like, not making it, right? <laughs> and, um but I was supposed to be like living my dream, right? So you can see how this is like this weird chasm for this child of like escapism, you know, who's nine years old and thinks that this this position, this world is going to set her free from like those types of um, kind of dire life and death. Like what is the thing in front of me right now decisions? And it wasn't. And it was like heartbreaking. It was like, <laughs> it was soul crushing because I just believed that so long. Um, and for so long and taking that job, um, made it, in a way I thought that I couldn't be an anthropologist anymore and I could not have been more delighted to be extremely wrong. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a lot of interesting things in there. Maybe just a few comments before we go on. You know, one thing that strikes me is that the business department, you know, was, interested in working with sociologists and anthropologists, but of course, you know, the social science, well, maybe I shouldn't presume, but it sounds like the social science departments weren't bringing in any sort of business or any kind of applied or maybe, you know, any like sort of career oriented stuff. So, um, you know, it's just an interesting observation, I guess, right. And, and, uh, and potentially room for improvement. Um, but I also found, you know, the, the field work is interesting because you're, you know, you're looking at identity and you yourself, Again, I'm sort of, you know, maybe inferring a little here, but like you yourself kind of went through like uh, a process of negotiating your identity as you're sort of, you know, not finding the job you want and, you know, then transitioning and yourself potentially even maybe doing like similar things with the technology. Like you mentioned, like changing like a Twitter handle, like, right, like sort of rep- maybe even representing yourself different in that in that public space, which again sort of speaks to you know, the topic of today of how like, you know, all these little interactions with products and everything else, it really does stretch into the civic space and has like broader implications for, you know, for you ending up, say, with the U.S. presidential transition team, you know, work, right? right? So it's, it's a very kind of interesting, you know, to tie that all together is, is, is quite interesting. And I guess any reflections, like further reflections on like the identity and negotiating the, you know, like I wanted to be an anthropologist, you know, in this maybe traditional sense, but I ended up in UX. Like for anybody who's listening out there, any thoughts on, I mean, I know you said it was a good transition in retrospect, but 
How today? How do you feel about like the term UX versus like being called an anthropologist? Like anything that you would advise people on to who are maybe struggling with that as well? Oh, oh, Matt, Matt! Oh my gosh! Do you have until next Tuesday? Those identity <laughs> issues. The way that I kept like PhD anthropologist on my LinkedIn for entirely too long. You know what I mean? Because I was so dead set on signaling who I really was, well, who I was in my heart, right? Um, and I wanted people to kind of understand or know who I was in my heart. And I didn't understand why people weren't finding me or I would put on my resume, like all of this, um, like, you know, maybe it's like a ton, like some some articles or some sessions that I spoke at and uh, conferences. And I'm like, I was at this conference and I was on a panel, so... <laughs> Uh, I'll take the job now. (laughs) So it was extremely humbling to realize that, that the creation of self online is very much a part of how you can like reform your identity. And something that I had to keep with me is that my methodology of question asking, my curiosity, the things that I actually get to study, right. Are one in one, the Venn diagram is a circle. Right. But um, but um, the way that you present yourself can just change completely um, who understands you and who um, sees you as a viable person to answer the types of questions that they have about their product. Do you th- so you mentioned LinkedIn. So do you think, you know, in your experience, um, do you think it's worth representing yourself the same everywhere, you know, or like, you know, in LinkedIn, you know, do you find it was helpful to call out something like UX research or service design, which I, you know, I know you have an interest in, um, but then maybe elsewhere, like I've seen in some of the bios I read about you, you know, you do mention like tech anthropologists and UX researchers. So yeah. do you sort of, you know, pick and choose based on, I guess, you know, audience, if you will? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think LinkedIn um, is a medium for, networking and like managing your career. Right. Um, and, um, I, I may be completely wrong here, but I think as a, an, uh, a recruiter who's like scanning for certain keywords or looking around like the, the, uh, the level of depth that recruiters are willing to go into, Oh, she says anthropologist, but can she do research? I'll check. Let me go down to the bottom of her. You know, like mm-hmm. that's actually not how people, search, you know, and that's not how you're able to gather like a a ton of opportunities towards you. Because what I've found is that a lot of those skills that we've learned in graduate school, they transfer and they carry and they they transfer very well, except um, there is a language, there is a milieu, right, that you have to familiarize yourself with. And who better than an anthropologist to go into a new space, learn those tools, learn those languages, right? And then make those types of connections. Like who better? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What did you do to learn that? Aside from like actually being in, you know, sort of in the environment and learning on the fly, were you doing anything, you know, during your your contract engagements to sort of, you know, upskill and teach yourself to discipline? Oh, absolutely. I was reading. I was reading like crazy. Like I was, um, let me show you for a second. This is like one of the, one of the many tomes. I have many of them. I feel very comfortable with books, but, um, 
Um, this is one of the many tomes that I um, use at the very beginning, observing the user experience, the toolbox of techniques that helps you walk in the shoes of your product users. There was like all kinds of like lean UX O'Reilly sessions. Like I just absorbed myself in the language, in the books. I took sessions. I did everything I could to feel confident, but there's nothing like doing the work, right? There's nothing like doing the work that can turn you into an extremely confident um, UX researcher. So yeah, I did do all the reading. I did all of the little courses and all of that, but I didn't feel like a UX researcher until I was asking the questions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, another, um, you know, sort of transition point with identity there, right? Really sort of getting comfortable in the UX research role. And now since then, you know, you obviously have branched out. So in the beginning, you know, you mentioned USAA and I think I saw elsewhere, um, you know, I think you generally refer to it as like sort of like early FinTech work. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, you know, all fintech sort of relates to civics in the big picture uh you know it's a little bit of a transition from where you were into sort of you know the overt concept of of civic tech today and so how did that begin was it you know was it working at ad hoc that really got you in yeah you know interested in that space particularly yeah actually it was it's it, it was i was say that it actually probably started in those fintech organizations working at Pentagon Federal. Um, They tasked me to kind of work on understanding the needs of what they were calling the unbanked, right? So this large collection of folks that just, you know, don't use bank accounts, right? Mm -hmm. And for some reason, like all these financial folks, I couldn't understand why someone would not have a Bank of America account, you know? And um, I'm very familiar with, you know, people with my own mother and my own family, like going to check cashing places to cash your checks, right. Or going to, um, or using like payday loans or going to like Renda center places to get, um, furniture. Right. So that had been uh, an experience of mine. Absolutely. So it started there, but at the heart of it, working with like transitioning into working with ad hoc, I feel like I had the language for it for what I was always interested in, right? And that is like the lives of um, the lives of people and what they use, right? Like what what types of tools are they using to get the life that they want, right? And, or not using because um, they don't have access. Or absolutely, or not using, right? Because they don't have access to. So um, for particularly at CMS or, or at ad hoc, we were this was a huge project, we were actually kind of rebuilding those mission critical systems, right, that pay for Medicaid and Medicare to those hospitals, right? Hospital quality reporting. They also give you information, the consumer, about how each hospital is doing on certain metrics that you care about. Like, hey, this hospital has four stars on oncology. I'm taking Uncle Joe there, right? So like that type of information that the the government gives back to you, uh, according to how well those hospitals are adhering to those. Mm -hmm. That was also, we were also in charge of that system. And what's, what's interesting about that work is that um, particularly for those, for understanding how those um, large systems work at the heart of it, the, the, our main goal was to sit and talk with those hospital administrators to sit and talk with the folks that are actually having to 
input in epic details. And as large as that project was for the entire United States, my goal and my focus became like, wait a minute, this person needs to um, input this data into this system, you know, in order for us to know any of this first. And so it just became this huge, overwhelming systems question into narrowing down to a pinpoint. This hospital administrator, right, this um, like worker from Boise, Idaho, you know, who wakes up 6 a.m., has those cool hospital shoes, you know, and she's also a nurse and she's wearing all these hats and it's very confusing and we just have to get her, you know, to um, input this process, you know, this one hospital worker is saving the country, right? <laughs> and so it was it was that aperture, right, that, that ability to... Um, to close and open that aperture is to help us understand precisely first what we have to do and its impact, but precisely who we had to pinpoint to get that system um, um, the way we wanted it. And I, I, I'm assuming a project of that size was, was it a multi-year engagement? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, though there's sort of these critical people who need to input data, it also is in many ways, you know, a multi-stakeholder project. You know, there's a lot of diverse, um, you know, probably interests there, but also, you know, there's ultimately people who get data out of that, like, you know, the rating of the hospital, right? So there's sort of these downstream, um, you know, beneficiaries as well. And so that's, you know, that's all complex to navigate. Um, And so... You know, though you were, you know, though USAA is obviously a big organization and you were doing some, you know, important sounding work prior to that, stepping into, you know, multi-year engagement like that is is challenging. And so did that present any you know, new challenges or opportunities for you? Oh, it absolutely presented new challenges and opportunities. For some reason, I think that I thought that the, that the bureaucracy or like the big, huge, like government wheels were going to resist us at every turn and that we were just going to be these people who, who are coming in to like save like government. It was that same mentality, like when we were uh, walking up the risers at the Astrodome, right? Mm-hmm. Say like, we're here now and we're here to help, you know? And um, what I found, and I was just, again, very happy to be so wrong, was that, you know, um, these these um, government like policymakers and and workers who we would call bureaucrats like they are the folks who absolutely know the system in and out who have to war with that process and about how laborious it is and how um, how um, terrible it can be to interact from the outside they are actually quite intimately aware and would want nothing more right than to completely change and remake that system. And we found some of our biggest and best advocates within the government to say, hey, this is how we should move forward. This is what we should do next. And we were I was particularly heartened by how many people would um, create a huddle around a solution that we um, decided, hey, you know what? This is really, really a confusing workflow. And at the heart of this, you're going to get you're not going to get the compliance that you need. Like that's federally mandated. Um, if you continue with this workflow and instead of saying can't be done, sorry, according to policy CB three, four, um, this is impossible. It was like, how can we get this done? Right. And that was the type of attitude that I was just so heartened by in civic tech. And I was so happy to be wrong 
about our notion of the bureaucrat, right? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I wouldn't have expected that. I thought it would have thought it would have been a little harder, um, which you know is a good reminder that we should never really step into anything with a preconceived notion, of course, right? Right. Uh, I, I do it all the time, and I'm m- mostly wrong. <laughs> so I was again, I was happy to be wrong. Of course, there were some policies and processes that felt implacable, right? That that were even like the idea of doing user research. We had to convince a ton of people that it wasn't illegal to talk to people about the systems that they were using, right? There was a Paperwork Reduction Act and people had just applied that that uh, regulation all over the place to say like you couldn't even speak to someone. Hmm. Or if you did speak to someone, it could only be nine people and those questions couldn't be continuous. So it was just all of these policy regulations that honestly, it just took some sitting down to say, okay, where are we getting this idea that it's illegal? Because if you can think about what's interesting about the government, that's interesting, honestly, about any institution, is that there's the policy, and then there's that like <laughs> trickle-down interpretation of policy over time, right? And then by the time you're in these processes, everyone has a vague idea of what you can't do, right? Without a real understanding of life. So what does actually the letter of the law say here? Mm-hmm. You know, So um, we were able to do that, honestly, by advancing and going deeper into policy. That actually brought me into a lot of the work that I that I was able to do with the pres- presidential transition. It's because the UX is in this interesting position to always bump up against company, social, public, private policy all the time, and it's in a in a u- unique position to always bump up against that. Yeah, I want to come back to that point in just a second, um, and as part of that talk about service design, but you know. To just step back for a second, I know you said that you were surprised by how sort of helpful most most everybody was, but I'm wondering if there's also like an opportunity in that space to kind of do like, you know, the kind of studying up, you know, if there's that opportunity and look at some of like, you know, the structural, you know, in that project, was there the opportunity to look at like structural violence and, and was there an opportunity to do something about that as well? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. There are entire, um, I can't go into like super detail in this particular instance with um, CMS, but you can imagine that any system is set up to optimize a certain type of individual, a certain type of user, right? And particularly for the hospitals, you would say that a lot of these, the the, um, systems were optimized for individual hospitals. But uh, as the, the nature of hospitals go in 2021 is that a lot of hospitals have um, come together and become hospital systems, right? And they are um, kind of represent one body, but are many armed, right? Like an octopus. And when we talk about what, how a system, what type of user and what type of experience a system is optimized to actually perform for, those are those types of foundational questions that push us um, into thinking about systematic and systemic um and use that term violence, right, toward those individuals that are outside of that bell curve of this is our user, right? And it becomes um, incredibly impossible for, for certain types of systems, certain types of hospitals to even um, get to a level of providing good evidence or providing um, good metrics or getting, you know, proper stars because the system was automatically not optimized for their um, situation. So that, that type of thing happens all, all the time across federal government. Honestly, and we're talking about like SNAP and food 
um, card distribution. If you can think about this, particularly after the outset of COVID, um, those who received SNAP benefits could not actually pay their um, with their SNAP with their EBT card online. So, if you can imagine during the um, yeah, the, the pandemic. Um, the as everyone was, you know, ordering their food online and sitting in their car or having it come to their home, those people who are using their EBT cards had to go in, go in right? Yeah. People who are disproportionately already um, under or below at some poverty line are now having to go into grocery stores um, and get all of their groceries that way because they actually can't um, participate in that um, online market to make yeah. themselves and their family safer. So when we think about like the, that kind of systematic violence, about thinking who is in and out of that bell curve, those are the types of things I think about. And I'm, so I'm not sure if you worked on any other, you know, not sure the, the the scope of all the projects you worked on at Ad Hoc, but one of the things I've always been interested with in the sort of health space within civic tech was, you know, the digital divide and who has access. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, when we're talking about like a, hospital administrator, presumably they're provided access at their house. But of course, when we're talking about patients, it becomes a much different problem. And so did, did you, as an organization, did you ever get into to addressing any of those kind of problems? And if so, I'd be just curious to hear like how you, you know, maybe what you understood and how you tried to address them. Oh my, my goodness. I think as an organization ad hoc, for the most part was um, situated at the point of patient care. For example, ad hoc was in charge of the one of the found two of the founders, um, after healthcare.gov had its really famous collapse, right? <laughs> These, um, you know, Paul and Greg were some of the engineers that are called in to fix it, um, and that's still a major part of Ad Hoc's platform is maintaining healthcare.gov, and that, that those are individuals with or without um, insurance who are coming in to shop the market based on this larger idea that hey, this can be <laughs> better regulated, right? So when we talk about like people at the point of, of need and patients at the point of care, um, Ad Hoc in particular had tons of, of um, contracts around that very thing. I specifically worked a little bit um, removed in those back-end systems, mm-hmm. right? But Ad Hoc as an um, organization, from working directly with veterans at the VA um, to working, like I said, right on the ground on healthcare.gov, they are just tons and tons of projects just like that that's i would love to hear more about that work someday you know it's the 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 concept of who's sort of left behind because of the digital divide you know especially as we are going through a digitalization process of you know so much in the economy is a really pressing one right because of it just increasing various gaps that already exist absolutely what what you what something that that I'm finding, particularly after COVID, is that the federal government almost reluctantly found itself to be um, essentially a digital services organization more than anything, right? And and then to just like sit you sit the, the federal government down to say, you know what, you're you're going to have to mature your kind of IT model because now you're in the business of digital service, right? And like and as much as you want to take some of these systems like these um, long application processes, right? And once you digitize those processes, what types of um, ideas, right? What types of optimizations are you bringing into the digital process as you bring that that long written application um, into a, a digital form, right? And we worked a ton on making sure that somehow we weren't reproducing or creating new um, lines of exclusion 
when yeah. we digitize processes like that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I'm working through a project right now, and I've mentioned now a few times in this podcast, but it's it's in the art space, and we're you know it's essentially you know a dig, you know you're digitalizing you know an offline process in the art market, but we know how many you know through. I mean, we know kind of many of us know that the art world is is very unequal. There's huge problems of diversity, inclusion, and in sort of the quote unquote established art market, um, and we're really trying to be very cautious about not recreating those uh, and taking some very, you know, I think interesting and novel, you know, approaches doing that, but it's challenging. And, and, you know, those things are um, one to uncover are difficult, but two to work around some of that, you know, can be, can be challenging that the solutions not doesn't always present itself. Um, Of course, you know, working with diverse stakeholders, both internally and externally, is a key to helping tease all of that out. But it's still not always easy to sort of, you know, especially in the world where we oftentimes have digital products interfacing with like sort of the material. It can be challenging. And so um, you gave a great example in your Envision article, you know, about how the PPP program, I think you said only 2% of the money went to um, Black-owned businesses. And so maybe you want to just sort of share, you know, your findings from that. um, But then maybe we could talk about, you know, how do we actually go about really addressing these problems? I mean, it's one thing to say that we just can't like keep encoding in the inequality, but like, well, as UX researchers uh, and as service designers, which I'm, I, mean, I, I am eventually going to come back to that term. You know, what can we really do? Right. Okay, that's that, that, that's a that's, this is like a huge like part of my heart right now, right? And what was so interesting about the first rollout of that um, those PPP loans is um, that there were core assumptions about relationships, right? That automatically set up certain populations um, to not be a part of the discussion, right? One of the major core assumptions, even when you're asking yourself the question about a a PPP loan and all these people are in the room and they're asking, hey, how should we distribute this? And you think, you know, in your experiences, you know, when you think about who these people were at the table in your experiences, they're doing their level best. They say, you know what, this, um, this huge financial institution, all these huge financial institutions carry a large percentage of um, these um, business these um, business loans. So why don't we start there, right? And it seems like um, a really natural and organic choice, right? We, and I'm using natural in quotes here and organic in that, and these also air quotes here. Um, but then when it comes down to implementation, right, um, there the actual, the real realities is that um, minorities and people of color who are starting businesses struggle, um, I would say, <laughs> across the board with even building up relationships with those traditional financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Black businesses are oftentimes funded by um, CDFIs, right, or um, private, like, not private, but like smaller credit unions or community foundations or th- these types of organizations that are outside, right, of our traditional banking um, conversation. And so starting out um, a discussion with PPP loans and then saying we will distribute them using these um, huge financial institutions because they we because we know that they carry kind of most of this debt, right? You've already made an assumption about who these business people are, right? And how they interact with the world. And what happened was that um, that it robbed 
uh, not robbed, but it took away um, an entire community or anyone, even when you think about um, organizations um, that were not people of color who just did not have those traditional relationships with a bank for one reason or another. They were completely excluded um, from that thinking. And it was, it was, I'm saying this to say that the heart um, of a, a researcher, the heart of a, um, of a, an anthropologist in this space is to go down to those foundational questions of assumptions, right? Like when you're in the room and you're thinking about how to implement this and how to distribute this, right? Then a, an anthropologist um, job or a UX researcher's job is to be in that room, right? It's to be in that room and say, what about, or have we thought of this? And how, how about these extenuating circumstances? And, and that sometimes requires being a few steps um, ahead for implementation, right? And it's a lot of information to carry in your head, right? To think about all of these types of users. But we tend to, to think of um, the folks who use the system as like, oh, here are the main folks and then the outliers, these outliers, right? But <laughs> the, the, the way that I actually think a good UX researcher, good designer does is design for the outliers because the bell curves, they're going to make it. You know what I mean? But if you design for it and think of the outliers, right, then you're not setting up an inherently ex- exclusive product, right? Do you understand what I mean? You know, it's, it's an interesting point, Alan. You know, and, but the challenge there sometimes, especially for us in UX, is that we don't always, I mean, it depends on the organization, of course. Yeah. But we don't always have a seat at the leadership table, like in a sense that, you know, we ourselves as like in, as a discipline are almost a little disempowered compared to, you know, some others. And so to fight, you know, for those groups who, you know, uh, in some sense need us to kind of help bring out their voice can it can be challenging at times. And so, you know, I appreciate that you were in roles in which that was uh, maybe desired you know, maybe more so than in, you know, some other organizations. But I'm wondering, like, you know, what, what do you do to help convince product managers or, you know, some kind of decision maker that you need to design for the outs, you know, for the, the ends of the bell curve? Oh, yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, I love that because what you've um, actually highlighted here are those uh, inequalities, right, that make um, being able to voice that really, really hard for people in certain types of positions. So um, what you've highlighted is that very inequality. And I say always, the answer to that is like always allyship, right? Like the the way that um, user um, research can, especially if it occupies a, a lower position or in a lot of organizations, user research is a nice to have, you know, yeah. could be cute, you know, if we figure this out, right? But in those instances in which UX research is siloed, I think it becomes that much more important to build out these personal relationships with product, build out personal relationships with, with whoever is in charge of like making business decisions or business management, making sure that like as much as you can, your um, research is kind of widely distributed and digested by those folks. Even if it's like, hey, we're going to go out to a lunch. We're going to go have a 15 minute virtual coffee chat. Like make sure that you create um, allyship with those folks who can actually push you up, push your um, needs up the 
ladder. So it's not necessarily about like walking into rooms and saying the, the researchers here stop that ship, you know. <laughs> but um, but it, honestly, it can be as simple as sitting down and chatting with product to say, hey, I noticed something interesting. What do, what do, and I mean, this is um, this is between me, you, and just the walls, right, or the readership or the listenership. But um, oftentimes, it becomes a bit of a a bit of an interesting show to walk people through your insights and make it feel like it's their idea. I think every UX researcher has been there that they've presented something, and then in the new meeting like somehow what they've presented becomes like common knowledge. They're like, oh yeah, because we all know that the user's X, Y, Z. It's like, we all know it. Did we know it yesterday? This is, this is interesting, right? So we have seen the way UX research gets cannibalized and um, turned into common knowledge. And I think we can use that in our benefit when we are in lower positions of power and we can make people um, 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 digest the work and make it become organic. Like I don't have a dog in the hunt if the CEO thinks it was his idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, but certainly the way that that idea gets purchased and moved around can be um, a point of agency for any UX researcher. How did you feel the first time, you, you know, your idea was co-opted and sort of became common knowledge? Oh, oh, I was like, uh, <laughs> because I was uh, petty and immature. I was like, uh, do you mean what I did? And it, <laughs> didn't add value you know it didn't in any way like make people go oh you know what uh, Nikki thought what Nikki said these the people who were presenting wanted to feel um, and needed to for various reasons um, that they were on top of the product and that they understood the product in, in, um, intimately and that piece of knowledge was part of them and their presentation of of themselves and their understanding of the product and so when I raised my hand to say, you mean what research uh, did, you know, it actually didn't do what I thought it would do. Right. Um, and I had to realize that him presenting this out as common knowledge was the work that I'd actually done what I, you know, what I meant to do, which which was to make sure that all of these findings were digested and then used to build a product. Yeah. In some ways, um you know, you could almost look at UX like servant leadership to a degree. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, it's it's quiet persuasion, and we're you know we're really, especially when we connect it to strategy, it, it is very much about you know setting, you know, a path forward. But you you very much have to lead other people along on that, for, and from a position where we actually aren't, you know, really in a you know, in power in in most cases at least. I love that phrase, quiet persuasion. That's exactly, that's exactly what it feels like. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's a tough role, but, you know, us as sort of culture brokers, facilitators, right, and the background that we have really lends itself to that. Um, it and those are skills that, you know, I oftentimes suggest to people who are trying to make the transition that they, you know, make sure that they're calling attention to and, um, you know, just sort of making sure that people understand the, the role of that. Um, but... So to sort of pivot and move forward in your path. So going from, you know, health, broadly speaking, to, you know, what you're sort of listing right now on LinkedIn is, um, you know, tech privacy policy. So how does that transition happen? And like, you know, I appreciate that privacy relates to health as well, but how did you get on that path and, and what's your interest there? Oh, yeah. Um, this is interesting is that toward the end of my 
um, tenure at ad hoc, particularly as a principal, uh, what I was finding was um, as I was attempting to like build out strategies for the team, um, a lot of my work uh, began to be like talking with um, talking with folks about why we're doing something a certain way and what policy this is important for or um, how this relates to a larger idea. So, for example, we were attempting to um, create some understanding around certain types of um, like data structuring. Right. So like this is for CMS is called interoperability. And that just means that everything is structured the same way. So when data comes in, every system is reading the exact same types of data over and over. Right. But these aren't just. Um, larger questions about how do we get people to adopt these new data structures? It became what types of policies, right? Um, do we have that actually incentivize these multiple, multiple forms of data structure, right? And so I began to um, get actually much more curious about that work, um, what it means to do that work a little bit upstream, right? So to think about who's crafting that policy. And there wasn't some magician uh, when you move the curtain and he's like, look away, look away. No, like these are people who were at some point um, imagining that they had like as much information about a process as they could. And they're building out policies for, um, for understanding these very like tiny projects or tiny interactions. And what I found I was doing was less research focused on the, uh, application of uh, this this knowledge of this user into a particular UI and much more research on this knowledge of a community into a certain type of policy, right? So I was transitioning from like user-centered research on on UI and systems and into like a kind of user-centered policy, right? You can still use those exact same tools, right? You still use the exact same level of questioning, right? But you're bringing your knowledge to bear on a different part of the process, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and so that's probably a good jumping-off point, um, you know, to talk about service design, which I really haven't talked about much on this podcast. But you know, it's there's obviously some overlap with UX in terms of methodology. Um, you know, I, Europe it's a little bit bigger in Europe than it is in the states currently, but in the civic space, service design seems to now in the past, you know, whatever that may be, few years, be popping up quite quite a bit. Um, you know, and and people will define you know UX service design, customer experience design. They you know various people define all of those differently. But you know, it is a little bit more inclusive, a little bit more inclusive of like the broader process. And so, is that kind of what piqued your interest there, and 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 got you going down that path? Absolutely right. Um, I think these are really part and parcel. I think that once you're able to step outside of just thinking about one. Um, UI or one system and you kind of step out to say, wait a minute, what are people doing before they get to this part of the process? What are they doing after? What are all of the plugs that make this um, form? Like, why, do this, why does this form need these particular inputs? Once you start asking, like stepping back and asking those larger questions, that is essentially service design. You are thinking about an entire system, right? And that includes, that's on and off of the screen, right, of the UI. And I think that um, that it's not, I think most researchers think about that when they do like contextual inquiry and they're sitting down with folks and they're seeing how they interact. But most of the time they're bring, they're bringing their information to bear on, you know, maybe tiny aspects, maybe small interactions, but service design and understanding how people actually use a service from beginning to end and those inputs that are 
behind the screen and in front of the screen is an uh is a a structural understanding right that changes the types of products that changes the types of artifacts that we're able to create as UX researchers to say hey here's where this system is breaking down so even if we change this button from blue to green we're going to continue to have this problem because of this cog in the this little bug in the machine right here right or you think people are coming here and they're they're wanting to do x but in actuality they're coming in here from this situation and they're doing y so this ui is not actually the issue right so like there are instances where this solution right is non-technical right and that yeah (laughs) right and then at the heart of that like leaning into how you might um, move people into those non-technical solutions, I think is also a tenet of service design, right? Yeah, you know, obviously um, the tech sector at large, which is where UX is uh, primarily situated, mm-hmm. has a tendency to you know focus on the tech aspect, but all tech is just there to enable humans, right? I mean, being, going back before information technology, right? It's all just there to enable humans to sort yeah. of do something in their environment, more or less. And, you know, it's helpful in many ways to think back to you know, early anthropological research on, like, the diffusion of technologies and really kind of keep all of that in mind. And sometimes we can kind of get buried in the weeds in the UX space, particularly around, like, the information technology. But, yeah, there is a much larger sort of universe out there. Um, and that is, the, you know, in many ways the interesting uh, interface of uh, of uh, civic in a sense, uh, not to be combined, can be not to be confused with user interface. But I mean the fact that increasingly today, you know, we have these tech products that kind of reach outside of the tech space and influence right society very and in very broad ways. Uh, I know you're you're now at Facebook, um, and so you know, of course, Facebook, you know, you know, and the impact on you know things like elections or whatever it may be, right, is is a great example of why we need to understand the sort of behind the scenes or sort of off the interface, you know, technology interface. So um, I'd be curious just to hear a little bit about, you know, so your role there is qualitative researcher. It's not titled UX. And so can you share with us anything about, you know, what that role looks like and what problems you're kind of working on there? Oh, yeah. Um, I think for the most part, the work is UX researcher. I think it's just the types of research that you do. There are tons of quant researchers or, you know, folks that are like amazing geniuses, right? At like crunching numbers, not me, right? <laughs> so um, I just think it's just focused around like what your particular skill set is. But um, what's what's interesting about this um, privacy work is that you would think like moving from the government to um, a tech company that there would be a huge amount of like, hey, you know, we're gonna move fast. We're going to um, think about. We're gonna um, um, it's going to be like this major separation between like the uh, federal policy. But what I found is that this is like very much um, still um, a position in which, you know, we're uncovering, right. And combing out and moving through and t- attempting to uh, interpret federal policy. Right. And, and moving the, the needle. Um, so we might kind of build in internal systems that mimic um, the type of integrity that we've tried to set up um like as an organization around policy. So um, my role in particular is essentially around building in these internal safety measures, right, for privacy. And so at the heart of it, I think that 
it's remarkably similar, right, um, to a lot of the policy work that um, I was able to do for the prisoner's transition and also for ad hoc. It's that the heart of interpretation and saying, okay, we have um, questions that are larger than this particular tool, right? How do we define these t- these um, words? How do we understand how people understand privacy? I'm sure you've um, probably heard of the, um, the privacy paradox, right? Where um, individuals indicate a high need or a high desire for privacy, right? But their actions, their their actions online, right, are just like, yeah, 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 just give me the app, you know what I mean? Or like, like, so there's that the, the tension there that I think um, researchers, designers, product folks, even you know, outside of Facebook, people are, who are attempting to make the internet a, a safer um, space for um, individuals are constantly. Um, doing that work against those types of systems. So um, I guess what, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that I thought it was a large departure from the federal government, but it's it's actually quite in line um, in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, so in talking about the tension, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I, I did some work in this space. Um, I went to UNT and so we have an applied uh, project. I chose to do mine in the genetic space, which tied back to like some undergraduate interests. And so, you know, I was uh, not shocked, but found it very interesting that people are choosing to take genetic tests. And of course, the vast majority of people didn't read the terms. So where I'm going with this is, is there's all this talk right now about privacy which is wonderful. And there are certainly things that we can do in many aspects of systems. But one of the seemingly often overlooked ones is the actual terms itself, you know, and just the complexity of them, the legalese that goes into them. And, you know, maybe you have dug into this, maybe you haven't. So, you know, if no, it's fine. But I'm just wondering, you know, is there any talk on sort of just getting back to even like the, the, sort of the root of what it is that we are saying, you know, we protect and how we talk about privacy because privacy is misunderstood. And so, you know, and most people also lack an understanding of like what, what it means to be private on the internet in many ways. Right. And so, is there any talk of simplifying that? Oh my gosh. Um, We were having a discussion, um, honestly, essentially about the, the very idea of privacy as a principle. Right. And whether privacy is inherently exclusionary. Right. The idea of privacy means to restrict. Is it about creating and building boundaries around who is able to see? Right. But at the same time, when you do a ton of research and these are publicly available um, research studies around privacy, about why people share particular types of information and data, it is for that very reason. Like, hey, I'm building connection. I am seeking validation. I'm doing all these things. And in that instance, like the, the idea, the, 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 um, the creation of um, boundaries and the understanding of privacy as a creating a boundary and being inherently exclusionary, is, it, it doesn't serve us, right? And so we're just thinking, honestly, just brainstorming about like, is privacy more about who you let in, right? Like, is privacy more about who this is open to, right? As opposed to let me build out my borders, right? So we're just honestly um, taking those large questions as we think about like what is what do we actually mean by privacy, 
right? Right. And it's when I think in that social media realm, um, it's more about like, here's the universe of people who can, who can do, who can see, who, who are allowed, right? As opposed to let me make these like tiny modular changes to um, take out can'ts. I, I don't know. How, I'm not describing this well, but it was just a large um, conversation, particularly around um, what we actually mean by privacy. Sure. Yeah. And how that changes, of course, across culture is really interesting. Um, yeah. And something we probably don't have time to go into in great detail. But, you know, the other interesting thing there, in the way you described it, you know, it's almost like privacy in terms of human-to-human relationships, which is a component of it. But there is also this human-to-system sort of relationship, which is much harder for your everyday user to understand. And there are platforms out there that with relatively little effort collect so much data, particularly on like mobile devices, you know, and, you know, even if you set up your privacy, like on, let's say on a social media platform to sort of exclude, say, certain people or, or however, you know, it gets framed out, there's still this other layer, which you don't, oftentimes don't even know about, which is, um, you know, maybe uh, for some, at least for me, m- more worrisome. Um, because it's not clear, you know, you know, frequently what's being collected, how it's being used. Of course, Apple's now trying to do a little bit about that. But, um, you know, and I just found, like, in the case of, like, my research, I found that the level of understanding around, like, what was being collected and how that data could be used was not as rich as I wish it was. You know, and not a, that, that understanding wasn't as rich as I, I wish it was. Um, and I don't know how we solve that, of course. You know, but I somehow communicating about that in you know is seemingly a gap across the tech industry, including products that I'm involved in. I'm, I'm not throwing stones. I mean, you know, we're working on privacy policy right now, and I appreciate most people aren't going to understand it, um, even though we're trying to write it in a kind of a fun, easy way. But it's tough. Um, Absolutely. You know. And so, just real quick. Have you done any research on like the different perspectives of what privacy means with you know cross culturally? Um, not not a ton cross culturally. I can say that um, one of the major thorns. This was particularly with me uh, working in the government, but one of the major thorns that we kept running into in the federal space was how um, how ephemeral um, privacy felt. Right. To the folks that we were attempting to, like, help them understand, like, hey, this collects information or, hey, let's close this so you don't get phishing scams or something like that. Like it felt um, non-tangible in a way that was very hard to um, bring that information down into a level of understanding. So when you talk about like um, person to person sharing versus like what the system is able to um, take out. Like what happens, uh, particularly around that certain types of data, is that the the supply of data and those those um, systems using that supply of data is like this kind of level of irreducible complexity. I mean, even if you think about the federal government and like using certain bits of information to understand where you were in a particular um, spot when you made a call, right? Like what types of data becomes a um, breach of privacy and what becomes important to a police investigation, right? Like there becomes like all kinds of ways in which the supply of um, data is in, is 
extremely large and those consumers of that data get extremely muddy, even though I would say that the, I would say that the, the folks that um, collect the data absolutely, absolutely have a responsibility, but um, the consumers of that, of that data, I mean, I wish I could, could, the, the, the language really escapes me, but like, if you can think from like the, the smallest, tiniest interaction to like a huge, you know, government system in um, Washington, D.C., right? Like everyone takes bits of the information that they um, that they need to kind of build a case or understand something. All I'm, I'm not being very articulate. What I'm saying is that um, what is the hardest part is mapping out those um, system to user connections and mapping out those those roadways and those pathways from this data that is collected to where that data is going. Right. Um, to me, that's been incredibly complex. Just, I haven't really touched that on the Facebook side, but just in the federal government and the types of data that they gather from systems is just, you know, yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, the reach of, you know, of all these, of all this data is, um, it's, very complex to map and not just in this case also not just the system but like the what's what's really interesting becoming increasingly scary in, in some right but is really interesting is the ability of one person to implicate another through their data right and so you know it's it's very easy for me to articulate in the genetic space but i think you'll see how it relates in social media but like you know i there's people who are Hosting genetic data on sites such as the site that was used to to track down the Cal State serial killer, yeah. people post it there in almost like an open source way. You're just making it public, but of course that implicates you know if I was to do it, it implicates all of my family, right? Mm-hmm. And so we are sort of you know um, our our data trail, even if it's on social media, right? When you're ta- tagging people or whatever else, also implicates others in that data source, which. It you know it begs the question like you know what is also the individual's role and responsibility in all of this and you know, again don't have the answers and something that we need we need much more time to discuss but it's, it's incredibly interesting space to be working in for sure. No, I wish I, I mean I wish that I had better answers about how to figure this out right but the heart of it is um, I'm coming into this space with a ton of curiosity. Right. I'm trying not to do that thing that I do for the beginning of most of my careers and say, I'm here. It's it's fixed. (laughs) So uh, I'm coming into the space with a with a lot of questions and a lot of curiosity, but um, the same type of desire to make something known and understood. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's it's obviously a great space to play in. And given all the things that you've done, I'm sure it would be interesting Um, as we kind of are getting uh you know, seeing as we've kind of gone through everything more or less career-wise, um, I'd love to maybe just have you share a brief, you know, brief comments on uh, what you did with the U.S. presidential presidential transition. Um, just to maybe you know let everybody know about the great work, but also to inspire others and see how that they can kind of go from you know UX into something into that type of work, uh, and then maybe also you know we can just kind of talk about the fact that now you're on the Epic board and, and yeah. touch on that. So. Yeah. So um, that was a great opportunity. I was tapped by um, the Tech Talent Project because they were building for the first time ever 
um, what they were calling um, essentially um, tech, uh, uh, what they're calling a tech transition, right? So if you can imagine in the history of presidential transitions, there was never really like separate memos or separate documents um, around what an agency might need um, technology-wise, right? <laughs> Particularly um, if a system is held up by Band-Aids and chewing gum, right? Like, for example, those presidential memos weren't actually replete with that type of technical knowledge, right? And um, what we were able to do was um, sit down with the folks that are in charge of these tech systems, right? CIOs, CTOs, and these agency, agencies to say, hey, what's going to happen? Like, what do you need in the first 100 days? What do you need in the first four years? What has to happen? Particularly with COVID-19, as um, people found, for example, the the um, Department of Education needed to immediately scale out a ton of infrastructure for virtual schools, right? So these are the types of, of questions that were saying like, hey, we can't wait on this. Like, this needs to be solved in the next 100 days, right? And it became this collection of memos from the agencies, essentially having a conversation with those policymakers, with the president to say, this needs to happen now. And in the way I think why this skill set was particularly useful for a UX researcher was that you're still doing that translation work. You're still doing that requirements gathering, right? It's just the audience is different, right? You're still saying um, um, currently the way that this agency is set up the structure of this agency, this policy is problematic because it doesn't allow X, Y, Z, right? Or um, you need to hire these types of individuals in these positions, or you won't be able to do these mission critical things. And so you're still doing that similar work, but again, you're turning you're um, turning those memos um, instead of like kind of talking, having a big presentation with the product team, you're sending these off to um, the next president, right? And then just saying, hey, here's what needs to happen. I would say that the work was remarkably similar, but like I mentioned, I think the, I think the audience, right? The audience changed and like your ability to kind of, you know, tweet in public about your feelings changed, you know, (laughs) that was like the, the, one of the major um, changes of that work. But I would say like, honestly, that translation work, that ability to understand what the needs of one community are and to move that into understanding for another one, one one-to-one. And again, anthropologists are perfectly suited to this. Right? So, I agree. Yeah, wonderful work. Very cool. And so with Epic, um, so now you're on the board. Um, anything you want to say there? Just about oh, uh, what Epic's up to? And um, Epic is up to a ton of really cool things. Um, I think for me, it has been the premier place for me to think about um, the practice, and also to think about how um, theory and um, how we think about what we do um, rolls into that practice. For me, it's um, these things aren't inherently separate, and I love the way um, Epic is attentive to um, both of those aspects. I also love the way that, um, as an organization, it's also keyed in on making sure that people are aware of a ton of opportunities. Um, we have these free speaker series. We also have some on the platform free talks that are all about situating yourself as a um, an anthropologist in business. And I just suggest like if you're interested in transitioning your career, if you're interested in um, understanding what it means, or honestly just getting better in your practice, um, viewing some of those sessions, coming to a, 
a conference. If you work at a large enough organization, a lot of the um, they, a lot of organizations will kind of comp conferences, and I've never um, I've never found like more value. Like there's the AAA, there's Epic. Those are conferences in the past before I was a board member that I would never miss as far as like building up opportunities for myself. So absolutely. Yeah, great. Yeah, and no, I would echo it. It's a definitely a great organization. And as always, I, I frequently am linking to it in the show notes. And I will uh, particularly, I will link to the talk that you were involved in on civic tech that Matt Bernius had had facilitated. Wonderful talk. Um, great team up there. So um so Nikki, thanks um, for everything today. Where could everybody find you? Oh, okay. So you can find me at um, Twitter. It's nicknack 4 I'll send you the link. Um, and you can find me also mostly on LinkedIn. Great. Well, I will link to those. Again, thanks very much. Appreciate it. It was great talking to you. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.